0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. It says Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and you would have to go back to the previous chapter to see all that Elijah had done. But we are talking about the experience of Mount Carmel, you remember that challenge that contest on top of the mountain and shortly on the heels of that the breaking of the drought by the prayers of Elijah and the king goes home and talks to his wife including a detailed account of also how he killed all the prophets with a sword Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this warning may the gods judge me severely if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life as you did theirs. Elijah was afraid. That's a shocking statement. So he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. While he went a day's journey into the desert, he went down and sat under a shrub. Your translation may call that the juniper tree. And I'll refer to the juniper tree from time to time. So that's, that's the shrub there, synonymous. Some of you might have a broom tree. And ask the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. So you can see the crash and burn, can't you? He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. And all of a sudden, an angelic messenger touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked, and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and slept some more. And the Lord's angelic messenger came back again, touched him, and said, get up and eat, for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. So he got up and ate and drank, and the meal that that gave him strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, a very powerful wind went before the Lord, digging into the mountain and causing landslides, but the Lord was not in the wind. And you're familiar with this passage of Scripture as well. After the windstorm, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a soft whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his robe and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. And all of a sudden, a voice asked him, why are you here? Elijah, he answered, I've been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God, even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they made with you. Tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. There it is. Now, the first thing is we're dealing with the suddenness of this crash how quickly we can go from being on the mountaintop and life is wonderful to finding ourselves in that fallen state sometimes feeling like this is the lowest low I've ever had what a rapid descent that can be it's slower going up the mountain Sometimes when life is getting better, it gets better in very small steps, very small increments when we are going up. And then one day we finally wake up and realize that all that stuff is behind us. But you can go to sleep and wake up and discouragement is all around you. Crash and burn. And this was Elijah, let me remind you, that was plummeted from the lofty heights as a powerful prophet, shaken Shaking up the kingdom he dwelt in and confounding the king with his baffling miracles and the power of the spirit. This man was unstoppable. They couldn't even catch him. And even when they had him cornered and they felt it was a certain thing, Elijah called down fire out of heaven and just gobbled up the armies and their captains. And the king lost 153 of his top-notch military soldiers and the officers leading them. We read in the previous chapters I had mentioned his, his stunning victory on Mount Carmel when he challenges all of the false prophets and mocks them and then kills them. We read in the previous chapter of the breaking of the drought simply because a man like Elijah prayed it makes it sound so simple he he prayed but the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and the drought was broken what do they do with this man he's uncontrollable and to go from that kind of an illustrious career and the power of the lord all over you and single-handedly defeating armies to the point where he runs to the desert And sits down and says, Lord, just kill me. I've had it. The cause of despair. And I'm going to analyze this a little bit. I'm going to take some liberty. You might see something different in there. But the first thing I see that caused Elijah to plummet so quickly and so deep and hit so hard was because he took personal offense when he should not have. How many of you have read John Bevere's book from a few years back, The Bait of Satan? Would you lift your hand? Got a number. Those of you who have not read that, read it. Because it's talking about offenses. Not only about how bad it is to cause offense, but how dangerous it is it is to take Offense. And that's what Elijah did. He took personal offense. He was working for God. God was in control. And you know in in this era we're living in, if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus said if they do these things to me, they're going to do it to you. But we get personally offended. If somebody mocks us for our Christianity or treats us poorly, We get personally offended. And it's a dangerous thing to take up an offense when it's not personal. We can be offended for God's sake. And I think we should be. But when we are personally offended, then things begin to happen in our psyche and our emotions that should not be happening. We have to be able to lay those things down. But he did. He got personally offended When this man, who seemed to be able to handle himself quite easily in any circumstance, receives word from Jezebel, the queen, saying, I've put out a contract on your head and you'll be dead in 24 hours. And that hit him like nothing else had ever hit this prophet in his life. And he runs out to the desert. Asks for God just to kill him right now and put him out of his misery. And states his concern. Lord, I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. It's all worthless. So taking this personal offense, he is struggling with trying to process somebody doesn't like him. Get used to it. This is not a popularity contest. I've got a file cabinet full of unfan mail, full of people's letters that have given me a piece of their mind and told me where they want to me to spend eternity. It's real easy at that point to take it Personally. But you can't do that. If they did this to Jesus, how much more are they going to do it to me? kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So we've got to get past this personal thing. The second thing that brought on this crash and burn was a feeling of ineffectiveness. I don't know how much that relates to the laity. But I'm thinking that probably all of us suffer great anguish when we feel like we've done everything we can and we've made no progress. Now put that in any context you want to put that in. But especially don't forget to put it in the context of all I've done for the Lord. All my life, Lord, I've lived for you. I've tried to do my best. I did the best to raise my children right. And some of you here today, your children are not walking like they ought to. And you feel ineffective. Or you've ministered for years to your family or your mother or your father and they won't listen to you. And you feel ineffective. Or I could build any number of other scenarios or you could share scenarios with me that I'm not even getting close to. And when you look at what you're trying to do and what little you have accomplished, you kind of feel like Elijah. Lord, it's not worth it. I've had it. I'm through. I've given up my best shot. Nothing is happening. I give up. He plain complained to God. He said, I'm no better than all my ancestors. They tried. They couldn't do it. I came along and I thought I could do it. This power that you had loaned me. I thought I could do this. I thought I could turn Israel back to you but I don't seem to be making any progress, God, and I don't see any reason for me to continue. I'm ineffective. There's not much that takes the wind out of a person's sail. Much more than feeling like after you've done everything, you've accomplished nothing. Let me put this in another context because it's not just on a personal level, but let's think for a minute about the American church. I am concerned that the American church is at risk of despair because we're not seeing the tide turning in our favor. As a matter of fact, all the numbers that are coming in are very discouraging. There are less people today in the United States of America who claim to be Christian than there was 10 years ago. The numbers are falling. There are way less people today who regularly attend church. Most American churches are in a slide. They're not just gradually losing, they're sliding. And I wonder what the church is feeling. I wonder if we're on the edge of despair. The momentum seems to have been picked up by people who have concerns other than Christianity. Christianity whether that be the atheist group or the agnostic group or other r- religious groups that are gaining ground. And Christianity doesn't seem to be gaining ground anymore. And do we feel as a church, kind of like of Elijah, that this is not working anymore, we're on the losing side, and we as the church collectively just feel like running to the desert, putting our head between the knees and say, Lord, kill us now, it's not working in America. And I think we have to fight the dis- despair and the discouragement. Now, the encouraging part about this is there is now beginning to bubble this sensation among many of the great leaders of Christianity around the world that they are having a, a deep, driving desire to see a revival in America. I'm not here to tell you that God has told them He's going to bring revival. I'm telling you they're having a burning hunger to see revival. And Reinhard Bonnke and some of these that have been around the world and seen great success in many of the other countries now, God is bringing His focus to America. We need revival now. That's a given. We need revival, but now we got the big guns who are pointing at America and say we can turn this around. God's not on the losing end. The church will survive. But we can't despair. We have to see the big picture. It's going to survive. And it doesn't make any difference who else surround us or what the numbers or the reports say. I choose to believe the report of the Lord. And I'm praying for revival. Revival. Not just revival in a little location like West Side that will have some impact on our community. But a nationwide revival of the church. Because I believe we're ready for it. You know, you know why I believe that? Because we have two full generations now that have been raised not in church. They don't own a Bible. They can't quote you scripture. They can't tell you the crucifixion story. They can't tell you five books of the Bible. They are completely ignorant. They have been spoon-fed all of the secularism and humanism and atheism and agnosticism that the world can spoon-feed them, and they are starving. I know they're starving because that diet doesn't keep people alive. They are looking for something, and the something we have. We have. That's the reason I know that we're ready. People want something, and they're going to throw off all of their teachers and all of their mentors when they get so starved on that thin gruel that the world is trying trying to feed them. And when we come to them with the hope, the message, the meat, people are going to buy into it because they want peace. They want hope. They want forgiveness. They want love. And these are all the things that God offers. We can see revival. We should not despair. The third thing that drove Elijah into the desert is fear. It's difficult to understand how this powerful and fearless prophet is suddenly gripped with debilitating fear. But I, I, I want to suggest to you the way he got to the point that fear could overtake him is he surrendered on the first two issues. Now, if you'll think about it, fear is an emotion. It's difficult for us to control our fundamental basic emotions. We might be able to, with therapy, work on things if, if you have a A fear of heights, they can give you therapy and help you overcome that. But it's a basic emotion. It's not just something that when you are afraid of something, you say, I'm not going to be afraid and go, well, I feel better. We just can't turn it like that. But you look back at the other two. And that was a product of the way we think. That was a product of personal choices. He chose to take personal offense. That was not an emotion. He chose. He thought about it. He constructed his mind in such a way that whatever Jezebel said, he took offense. That was a choice he made. The second one, feeling effective. What things appear, we can have the mental discipline, especially with what God has informed us about, that we don't have to buy into the appearance of effectiveness. We realize that God has told us That not everything is as it seems, not what it looks like, but if you just hold on faithful, God will do His work. We can discipline ourselves with that. It's a matter of making a choice. It's a state of mind. I know being in the ministry, it's easy to get sidetracked by something like feeling ineffective. But you have to remember, one of the most powerful things is we are not expected... To be successful, we're expected to be faithful. And that keeps us from buying into this, getting discouraged when we feel effective. So you got to get the first two under control. You have to fight that battle in the mind because if you don't, and you get discouraged because you take personal offense when you have no business taking personal offense, you get discouraged because you assess the circumstances around you and you feel ineffective, and you just nurse that, The third thing is you're going to be gripped with fear. And the reason is because you have inserted yourself into the formula. You have become your own strength and your own resource and it's all about you. And as long as it's all about you, you suddenly realize when you're surrounded by the enemy, you are not enough. You need God. So if you kept God in the first two things, you would have God against the fear as the third category. But it's tough. Take control of the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, a familiar scripture. And Paul tells the people at the church in Corinth, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's where we win the battle. Being mentally disciplined. We win it or we lose it. Depending on the way we think. And the choices we're making. Number two. The overwhelming power of despair. It's the heaviness of despair. That causes us to lose our sense of God's presence. I have been at times in my life. I feel certain many of you have been to that same place where you just didn't feel God's presence. And you begin to wonder in a very shameful sort of way if God is even there. Where are you, God? We get to relying on our feelings. And I know each one of us could preach ourselves a sermon or preach each other a sermon that we're walking not by feelings, but we're walking by faith. And we know all that. And that doesn't prevent us from getting to that point where you just feel like God is so distant. I've talked with many, many, many people through the years of my ministry that one of their concerns at that moment is I just don't feel close to God. I don't feel like he's hearing me when I pray. I just don't sense him like I used to sense him. I feel so cold and so distant. I'm going through the motions because I know it's the right thing to do. But where's God? Where's God in all of this? Or you're going through some tragedy. And you you keep thinking of God riding in like some hero on a white horse that comes in and rescues rescues you and pulls you out of that situation. And you are beholden to him. But he doesn't and you keep going through the trial, and and you say, where's God in all of this? It plays with your brain until you get mad at God. So we've been afflicted with this question of God. How come you seem so distant and the heavens seem so shut at times? In this despondent state, Elijah started looking for God anywhere he thought he could find Him. And I think it's interesting, it's it's an appropriate commentary to look at the different places Elijah first looked for God. He looked for God where the noise was. I think that's the default of people who are desperate. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I will tell you that whether I was a part of this dynamic or not, I as an observer know that in that little church I grew up in, if God was not there sovereignly moving, we made a lot of noise to make it look like He was. We're comfortable with noise. and We associate noise and busyness and all of this with God was there. And sometimes we could make so much noise that some people would go home and say, Woo, didn't we have church tonight? All we had was a bunch of noise. And we made it. And Elijah thinks, I've got to find God. So he goes to all of these sensational things. We're drawn to sensationalism. Sensationalism becomes this handy substitute when we've lost this intimate contact with God. When we're searching so desperately for God in the things and in the noise, we're missing the important fact that God really is still there. For for Elijah, it was this still small voice that reminded him God wasn't in all of the fanfare and the activity and the thunder and the wind and all of these things where we oftentimes go searching for God. We've got to find that place of getting alone and finding God, getting rid of all the distraction, getting rid of all the noise. I've been a pastor since 1980, going on my 34th year. I can tell you I've seen many people desperate For trying to find this connection with God, that they couldn't just settle in a church because in their church they say nothing's happening. And they go looking. And they go from one active center to another. Wherever it seems to be falling, these people want to be right there in the middle of where it's falling. Whatever it is that's falling, I don't know, it may not be anything genuine at all, but as long as it's happening, as long as it's noisy, they want to be there and siphon off that and feed off of that. And wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have any ties to one church? Because, you know, my church is boring, we don't do anything, but boy, it's really happening over there. You know, the people who have the discipline to come in and realize that God's not just in the noise and just in the wind and just in the thunder, but they come and realize that God's presence is sweet wherever people call on His name. He's here. He's here today. And we would not do God a service to come in and judge whether He's here or not depending on whether we got our our feelings tickled today. The simplicity of God's presence obscured by our blindness and our blindness caused by discouragement and the discouragement caused by allowing our mind to drift in those places that it should never, should never should have drifted. Number two in this overwhelming power of despair, the dark cloud of despair tends to blot out all of our victories and blessings. Now, my wife and I, she's not here today, so who's going to volunteer to run and tell her that she was in my sermon? I always have. Yeah, I knew. I knew. I always have dependable people. Before I can get in my car with my wife and go home, she says, so, you talked about me today. So I appreciate your faithfulness to your duties here. My wife and I, we're the example. As we take turns being discouraged, being the discouraged one and the encouraged one. We try to stagger it so we don't both get discouraged at the same time. We think that's bad chemistry. But you know, if it doesn't look like she's too terribly down, I can go down. If she assesses me and thinks I'm a stalwart of faith today, she can crash and burn. And we both use the same techniques to talk each other out of it. But the one thing I have found so interesting about this dynamic is this. That whenever we are up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, that what we keep feeding each other is when it looks so dark, when it looks so gloomy, when it's so woe is me, when we're so despairing, when everybody else is being blessed, why not us when it's all this it's always the complainer forgets all the blessings. And the encourager has to go back and say, We're blessed. And let's start talking about our blessings. And we do. And we start sharing with each other how good God has been to us. And then the more we start thinking about that, the more suddenly our eyes just open up and we realize how many people around us are way worse off. Way worse off than we are. And then we get ashamed and we pray through and repent and we're okay again until the next round. But the thing about the darkness of discouragement it tends to obliterate God's goodness and all of the victories we've ever had it tends to to blot out all of his promises that we've been standing on for so long and it robs us of the warmth of realizing God's blessed us richly and so we lay all that aside just like Elijah was able to conveniently forget how many things God had done through his hands and through his life and through his ministry And he goes out and says, I'm worthless, God. I can't do anything. I can't convert anybody. I'm the only one left. Just kill me and get rid of me. I am no use to you. No use to this kingdom. And you want to sit down and have a talk with Elijah right there, don't you? And say, get it together, man. You've done things no other human being on the face of the earth has done to this point in time. God has worked mightily through you. You're just a tool in His hands so knock off the junk, okay? But we're not there to tell him that. And somebody needs to come tell us that sometimes. Are you blessed? Because I want you to think for just a minute of the good things that you have and what it would be if those were taken away from you right now. And we think on his blessings. And we thank him for the victories he has given us. And we don't let the discouragement... Take those treasures away from us. Number three, the deceptive power of despair creates this illusion that we're all alone. It's never, it's never in my case when I feel discouraged that I feel like it's okay, God, because the whole world is discouraged too. We're all discouraged down here. No, it's like I'm in this little capsule. And darkness is all around me. And every place I look outward, everybody else is happy. And it's just me. Because it creates the illusion. Sometimes we think we're the only ones being tested. We're the only ones that have to go through this trial. Why do other people get away with all this stuff? And somebody even wrote a song those of you who know the old hymn book, farther along. And it comes to that one verse where it says, when death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and drear. Then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. So, I mean, that's that's the man who wrote that. His mentality at that point was, even the sinners have it better than me. They're not even trying to live for you. And they're prospering. What gives, God? I'm trying, and, and it's just me. It's just me. Something's wrong with me. If you can't fix me, kill me. Something is wrong here. And that's all the illusion of the discouragement. And Elijah tells God, I'm the only one left in this kingdom who's trying to live for you. And everybody else has deserted you. It's just me, God. God is gone in Elijah's mind. Hope is gone. And people are gone. He is so terribly, terribly alone. And this despair blinds you to the truth. And it casts this spell over you. We've got to get past, this is discouraging. We've got to get past this part. Number three, the victory over this crash and burn. Victory over this debilitating despair. The first thing I want to suggest to you as I draw from the dynamics and the principles of this story is let God minister to you. Elijah went out to this, this place just to be alone. Left his servant behind. He didn't even want his servant to see him in this condition. Just go hide. And put himself under a tree and complained and blubbered to God. And God sends an angel and begins to minister to the needs of Elijah. He's sleeping. He allows him some sleep. Then at the appropriate time, the angel wakes him up and Elijah finds there's food and there's water. And he nourishes himself. And then he goes back to sleep and God lets him sleep. He needs rest the angel wakes him up again and said, You need to eat because you've got a journey ahead. And you're not going to be able to make it unless you nourish yourself. So God provides and allows a time and a place of restoration. I've told people who have come into my church many times. They've come in wounded and wanting somehow just to... Get out on the front lines and start working for God. And I've told people, I said, you know what? It's not wise to send our wounded out on the front lines of battle. There's a time of repair and a time of healing that that healing will never come if your activity is such that it keeps opening the wound. You've got to have that rest. You've got to have that restoration. You've got to have that time of just sitting and letting God bring completion to your life. The psalmist gives us a very beautiful description of that place of restoration. God provides the time. He de- de- provides the place. And the psalmist, being very familiar with the uh, shepherding and the sheep, he sat down and he made this comparison that has become a classic for Christianity And he started thinking what God was like and what this restoration process resembles. And he penned these famous words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I won't need anything. Because the heart of a shepherd knows what it means to take care of the sheep. And knows that God is is the Good Shepherd. He makes me to lie down in lush green pastures. Doesn't that even sound nice to you? Leads me beside the crystal still waters. And in that place where there's rest, where there's peace, He restores my soul. And then he begins to list all the blessings that God brings into his life. Let God minister to you. And as much as we need that physical time apart, just taking the time and going to the place doesn't really complete the spiritual restoration. You can go and take your two weeks off and you can go to some luxurious island somewhere, some paradise somewhere, and come back and be just as weary as the day you left, unless somehow you go and you meet God in the process. That's where the restoration, the physical is good, you have to have that, but you have to meet God there. He restores, not the waters, not the grass, He restores my soul. God provides nourishment. He knows what you need. Nourishment is a fundamental need. I have to have water. I have to have food. This body doesn't work without it. Rest assured, God takes care of your needs. My God shall supply all of my needs according to His riches in glory. He will take care of you. He knows what you need. If He watches over the sparrows of the sky... Aren't you glad we have that witness in scripture? If he dresses the lilies of the field in finer array than even Solomon was dressed in, don't you know he takes care of his children? He will supply all of your needs. So there's three things about this nourishment. It's on your notes. You should possibly draw your attention to it, highlight, remember, go home and pray over this. The first thing is he knows what you need. The second thing is it's fundamental. He takes care of you. Number three is he knows what lies ahead and he prepares you for it. The angel woke up Elijah and this is the little part of the scripture that sometimes we've missed. But he wakes him up and he said, God's got something for you to do. You need this rest right now. Now that's hope. That's understanding it's not over. You might have sat down and wanted it to be over, but it's not over. God said, we're going to get you well. We're going to get you whole because there's a journey you're going to take. I've got plans for you. I already bought the tickets. It's going to happen. We just got to get you there. God still wants to use you. He still wants to employ you. He still has a plan. He has a divine plan. He just said, we've got to get you where you can do this. It's a great journey. But when I get done with you, you'll make the journey. You'll be okay. And you might not even know what God has planned for you tomorrow. You may not, or next week, you may not know today what He's wanting to do with you. As You sit there and just say, God, I don't understand the purpose of my life. Well, He's preparing you. He's nourishing you. Let yourself be nourished by God. Number three, God provides encouragement. And the Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and head for the desert of Damascus. Go and anoint King Hazael, king of Syria. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to take your place as your prophet. Now there's three people he's told him to get in contact with. And these are all three critical pieces of the puzzle. And God said, when you do this, and you anoint the kings, and you get your mentor, and you anoint him and train him, I'm going to set up a network here in this land, where anybody who escapes the sword of Haziel is going to run into the sword of Jehu, and we've got him. And anybody who happens to escape the sword of Jehu is going to run into Elisha, and he's got him. And furthermore, it doesn't just end with Hazael and Jehu and Elisha. And here's this big revelation Elijah doesn't have a clue. But God now divulges the secret weapon. He said, you're not alone. I don't not, not only have a Hazael, I don't only have a Jehu. I don't only have an Elijah. I've got 7,000 people on the books who have not bowed their knee to Baal, who have not kissed His image, and they're ready to go to battle for me. Praise God, we're not alone. We're not fighting this battle alone. I have a plan. There's going to be victory. And there's plenty of people. I've got all I need. You're not alone. 7,000. This is the payoff. You work and you work and you work. And when Elijah felt at his lowest point... Worthless, ineffective, abandoned, and isolated. He discovers at that point his ministry has not been for nothing. You know, that's what we need once in a while. We need some affirmation that your labor is not in vain. It keeps us going, doesn't it? I've told you many times, I love my tomatoes. I grow tomatoes because it's one of the few things I am involved in in life that has an immediate payoff. My efforts produce something I thoroughly enjoy. Ministry and growing tomatoes are nothing alike. So I fill in that empty gap with these temporary little victories. I think sometimes it's just me. I think I'm all alone. I think I'm not doing any good. But you must have a few thousand out there on the books that I don't know where they are. But every once in a while, people, even for you, even for you to look around and suddenly realize you don't know why you gave your time driving those old rickety buses around here. But every once in a while you run into somebody that they're serving the Lord and you realize there's a payoff to what you did. You don't know why you came down to this church and spent that many hours in volunteer work and trying to put something up because you look around and say, well, there's nothing going on here. But you don't know what's happening in the kingdom because you provided something. You touched somebody. You made West Side possible. There is a remnant of people. God has touched people through your life. Don't you get discouraged. The enemy wants to believe you've done nothing. God knows what you've done. The second thing you need to do, let me go back and remind you the first thing because it's been two hours ago. First, let God minister to you. And the second thing you do is look for opportunities then when you are restored to minister to others. And that's what God told Elijah. I'm going to restore you, but I'm restoring you not to retire. I'm restoring you now to minister to others. The best thing you can do when God has you healed is now to look outward. Quit looking inward. Inwards is the worst. You're going to kill yourself. If you just spend your entire day navel-gazing, it's going to kill you. You're going to quit having this introspection. You're going to have to quit studying yourself, poor me, and start looking outward. It's not about you. It's about people next to you that are hurting it's about people that need to hear what you have to offer. Let your, let your efforts be out. When you're fighting this battle against despair and God is bringing restoration to you and your depression is focused on your depression and you're not even aware of other people's needs, why don't you just reach out to somebody else? And begin to minister to them. Because as long as you're focusing on you, you're feeding your discouragement. When you get beyond yourself and you focus on others, that's when you find the completion to your healing and your restoration. I don't know where you are in this process. Some of you are being restored. And some of you have been restored and you're still sitting on the shelf. Where are you? Bow your heads.